Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Vladislav Zubok. Professor Zubok is Professor of International History at the London School of Economics. He's the author of a number of well-known and well-received books, including A Failed Empire and... Uh, Zhivago's Children. And today we are discussing his latest book, Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for having me here. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? The main thesis of my book is that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, was surprising for everyone. It was unexpected, and actually I argue it was not uh, inevitable, at least at that particular historical time under uh, particular historical circumstances. This is the main thesis. Why do you claim, quote, that for historians, the Soviet collapse represents a puzzle of which Mikhail Gorbachev is at the center, unquote? Uh, Because I've been teaching Soviet history for many, many years, and I noticed that uh, my students, uh, when we get to this moment when the Soviet Union suddenly begins to collapse, they really do not get it. And uh, I asked myself, do I understand uh, on the basis of existing books, literature, explanations why the Soviet Union collapsed? And I answered myself, you know, I don't understand. Therefore, I cannot explain fully to the students, aside from you know, a moralizing tale of how that was a very bad, very evil empire, bad state and and the poor economy. And ultimately, uh, chickens came home to roost, as one historian put it. But that is not a historical explanation indeed. So I began to look into existing explanations and sort of deconstruct them. Uh, And then I decided to write my own book and went to the archives and, uh, you know, began to work. It took a while, actually, for me to uh, create my own narrative. Why do you disagree with Archie Brown's view of Gorbachev? Uh, Well, uh, I do not disagree with Archie Brown on one principal thesis that Gorbachev was a well-meaning person that wanted to reformed the Soviet Union. Um, Where I disagree with him, I guess, he argues uh, that uh, uh, the Soviet Union was basically unreformable and Gorbachev met at every point the resistance of uh, the material that he wanted to reform, beginning with the party um, autocrats and uh, then various economic lobbies and um, and ultimately, you continue this logic uh, to, to some extent. You find it also in a book by Bill Taubman, uh, um, the great biography of Gorbachev. But he comes to, to that striking conclusion that Gorbachev was a great reformer. But his tragedy was in the fact that he uh, tried to reform uh, the, you know, the material that he tried to reform. That is Russian people, Russian society uh, was too too. Too, too hard to reform. And implicitly, there was also an idea that the Soviet Union was a multi-ethnic empire that uh, the moment you start to reform it, it was bound to fall apart to pieces. So um, that uh, that's where I uh, began to do my own research. And then I do not necessarily began with this premise that Archie Brown is wrong or Bill Taubman, who is my friend, is wrong. But when I began to uh, look at the material, uh, it simply did not fit into the pattern um, uh, delineated by those historians. I began to see that actually many people supported Gorbachev originally, but then, you know, his uh, first round of economic reform proved to be highly disastrous and counterproductive. It led to worsening of economic situation. 
And his political reforms, again, very well-meaning, were so rapid and so drastic that, uh, you know, they um, opened up the Pandora boxes of grievances, but particularly at the time when his economic uh, reforms did, did not work. So you add, uh, you know, the worsening situation in people's living standards and economy and the opportunity to voice discontent, and then you come up with a pretty strong fuel um, that indeed creates, uh, you know, creates a very, very radical uh, political situation inside the country. Would it be true to say that your treatment foregrounds contingency in the Soviet collapse? Uh, contingencies are my, you know, not only my preferences for history, they are the essence of history. Nothing in history is well-planned, I should say, uh, and particularly politicians, they start reforms, they launch revolutions like Vladimir Lenin in 1917, uh, and without really knowing where that this would lead uh, them and uh, people in the country. So that's the essence of history. And therefore, I, at every step, I foregrounded agency, not only Gorbachev's, but people around him and people who opposed him, such as Boris Yeltsin or the Baltic nationalists or, or other oppositioners. And then I uh, paid attention to um, all kinds of uh, chances, you know, you call it contingencies, all kinds of unpredictable consequences. For instance, Gorbachev started his economic reforms uh, with absolute conviction that if he decentralizes Soviet economy, then people would be grateful and take initiative and economy would improve. People, Some people took initiative and economy deteriorated. That was a hugely unexpected result for him, but he refused to accept this. Uh, he continued to insist that his wrong reforms were just, you know, uh, they just needed more time. It, that's the uh, perfect combination uh, that I call agency and contingency. Gorbachev doggedly pursued along the wrong course, at least in economics, and then uh, contingencies uh, made it even worse with all kinds of other things like national explosions, an earthquake in Armenia, you know, and uh, Chernobyl, for instance, and other things. What were Yuri Andropov's views on the need for reform when he succeeded Leonid Brezhnev in November 1982? And in retrospect, if implemented, would they have avoided a Soviet collapse? Well, uh, the book opens with this chapter, the KGB reform about Yuri Andropov, and um, that evokes different reactions among my readers. Some say I'm a, a hidden or nostalgic Andropovite. I'm not. Um, some people say that Andropov was not a reformer at all because he was the KGB in the best he could do uh, during his extremely short um, uh, term. Um, 1982, 1983, uh, that he forced people to, uh, to, to work, he used police methods, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not arguing that uh, Andropov, uh, you know, uh, did great things during his tenure. What I show is that he, he, he had a concept of reform, more in um, uh, in sort of in harmony what later happened in China with all the differences between the Soviet and, and Chinese economy and society. Uh, the Andropovite reforms uh, would have been closer to the logic of authoritarian conservative reformism, which means, as we know from China's experience, that the party retains uh, full power. But uh, experiments in economy continue until uh, they uh, sort of achieve the desired results, sort of what Dan Xiaoping later called a feel for the stones when you cross the river. Um, and also I showed that uh, uh, Yuri Andropov not only promoted Gorbachev, a much younger, of course, a younger colleague to become his successor, he also uh, was evolving. He uh, discovered as he became the general secretary, he discovered 
uh, new problems and reacted to those problems uh, in conservative way, but we don't know how he would have evolved had he stayed in power. He died very early, uh, you know, in 83, and uh, during the last months he was incapacitated. So, well, uh, shift, shifting to Gorbachev, people forget that he began in a very Andropovian uh, kind of mode himself. Nobody expected him to go so far in the, in the direction of liberalization um, and dismantling of communism. Yet he, he, he also evolved later on, but not in the direction Andropov would have done. I, he evolved in the opposite direction. When Gorbachev realized that his economic reforms were failing, he blamed it on the party. Uh, apparatus and uh, basically began to say that it was the sabotage of the party apparatchiks that caused the the uh, the uh, um, failure of his economic reforms, which was totally untrue, by the way. Why exactly did Andropov favor Gorbachev as his successor? Because Andropov was, uh, in a sense, a true Bolshevik, <laughs> you know, to uh, make a distinction between the Bolsheviks who believed in some ideological promises of communism and those apparatchiks that uh, just uh, basically were cynical and careerists. They didn't believe in anything. And Andropov lived through Stalin's period. He also was a devout Stalinist. He believed in force and power and coercion in uh, terror when terror was needed. Later on, he stopped believing in terror, um, but he used the KGB for all kinds of, you know, policies that we associate with the KGB, right? You know, psychiatric asylums and so on and so forth. So usually people wonder how such a man could fell, you know, not in love, but, you know, he felt affection for Gorbachev. I do think that he uh, saw Gorbachev as his younger self, more idealistic, definitely uh, loyal to the ideas of the early promises of communism. Gorbachev kept uh, reading Lenin and citing Lenin, that, you know, the founder of the party, and that also appealed to Andropov. So he saw him as uh, an, intel an intelligent, uh, well-educated, and definitely dedicated a promoter of the socialist project that would carry it on after the old generation goes goes away. He was wrong, but he, he thought so. Would it be true to say that at bottom Gorbachev was an old-fashioned wannabe Moscow intelligent and that he was lacking in the administrative and governance uh, skills needed to govern the Soviet Union? No, none of the above, I would say. Uh, he was not a Moscow intelligent and never was. I know, He's... but what I meant was that he wanted to be one. Oh, he wanted to be one. No, I don't think he ever wanted to be a Moscow intelligent. He spent, uh, you know, lovely five years at the Moscow State University. He met his wife, Raisa, there. He enjoyed Moscow culture. He appreciated Moscow intellectuals. But I think he always wanted to, to, to be a doer, not a thinker. Uh, he had, however, you know, big affection for uh, theory. Um, you know, his, his, uh, his wife was a philosopher, graduated from the Department of Philosophy, um, and uh, he read sociology, philosophy, and all that stuff. So he thought he could be like a modern Lenin. In other words, combine his practical skills, and he did have practical skills on a local, regional level to run, uh, to run, you know, the uh, northern Caucasian region of Russia and Stavropol. And he could combine it with grand theory, and uh, that would result in some kind of a grand strategy. Um, in retrospect, however, I think he figured it out wrongly. He, uh, you know, he uh, again, returning to what I said, he uh, he blamed the party cadres for uh, the sabotage of his early designs. He relied on what you may call technocracy of uh, the government, those economists, those managers of big uh, industrial plants. Uh, that he, you know, for, above all, uh, he relied on the captains of Soviet military-industrial complex because you saw that the military-industrial complex produced great things, uh, such as, uh, you know, space shuttles, such as, you know, missiles and stuff. And he wanted that those people sort of to, to modernize the Soviet Union. Uh, so the, the the point is not that he 
did not know how to govern. The point is that he uh, decided that he should pass all this power to the regions, to the republics, and to representative uh, institutions, which, you know, which is great. It is great in theory. It's great on paper. But uh, with uh, with a situation like that in economy in the country, in such a you know, very complicated country as the Soviet Union was, you know, passing responsibility and not making necessary decisions in time was a recipe for anarchy. And Gorbachev, I think uh, when this uh, period of instability erupted very soon in late 1988, he decided that 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 is okay. This is, you know, his revolution. A revolution, at some point, he said to his aide, uh, implies instability. So I wish I, I should run on the crest of this instability, and ultimately, like Lenin had done before, I would lead the Soviet Union to to some kind of a reformed voluntary union. Unfortunately, at every step, he made his uh, decisions too late. He looked for a compromise. He looked for a consensus in the country when consensus was basically inachievable on, on any major issues. So by seeking that consensus, he proved to be a very democratic-minded leader, but he lost time. So is that why you say that uh, Gorbachev's decision to give, quote, all powers to the Soviets, unquote, a, uh, quote, fundamental political error, unquote? Yes. Uh, so the, uh, you raised the question about power to the Soviets and why it was a mistake. Uh, my answer would be this power to the the Soviets never worked as as a, as a governing principle. It didn't work in 1917. It basically created an political anarchy uh, that uh, the Bolsheviks used, and Lenin seized power in the name of the Soviets, but quickly appropriated power and you know for his political party and for himself and for a very narrow group of the Bolsheviks. And then later Stalin, of course, reduced it to to a charade, a mere, 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 you know, uh, facade. So uh, when Gorbachev tried to revive the Soviets, he created a system that lacked checks and balances. He hoped that he would be the main person to exercise as an arbiter of different forces that he unleashed. But he, uh, you know, in a sense, he lacked institutional power for that, strangely enough. And uh, later on in uh, early 1990, when he realized that he uh, removed the old uh, backbone of the system that was the uh, party system, the centralized and hierarchical party organization. Then he tried to uh, cobble together a sort of presidency, and he was elected as president of the Soviet Union. But then you find uh, one of Gorbachev, one of two major Gorbachev's uh, principles, or rather psychological traits of his character. A, he had a sincere aversion to the use of power, use of force, and B, he, for this reason, perhaps, he did not want to organize the strong executive uh, branch as, uh, you know, uh, his predecessors and actually his successors did to rule Russia. So he preferred to rule by you know, um, talking, he, you know, by, you know, and by doing that kind of govern mode of governance, he gradually lost authority among people. Later on, he switched uh, back to the decree mode. He began to issue decrees, but people stopped listening. People stopped fearing uh, the executive power and, uh, and uh, took those decrees as basically pieces of paper. They, they didn't work. Why was Boris Yeltsin, as you put it, quote, Gorbachev's political twin, unquote? Well, they, they were born in the same year, 1931. They went through the same uh, historical experience, uh, you know, late 30s, um, collectivization, uh, Stalin's terror and revolution. At least their parents lived through that, and they, as, as the kids. Then the war then the post-war reconstruction. So they were very similar generationally. Uh, differences began when uh, Gorbachev uh, grew up in the South and then had his lottery ticket, got into the Moscow State University and became well-educated. Yeltsin was born in the Urals, you know, the borderland between Siberia and European Russia. And um, also in 
both were born to peasant families, I should should have said. So, but Yeltsin, uh, you know, got some education, but mostly technical education, and never touched, uh, you know, had a touch with uh, Moscow intelligentsia like Gorbachev did. So uh, they were very similar. In, in their character were different. Uh, characters were different. Uh, now Yeltsin was direct, blunt, uh, did not accept compromises. He attacked. Uh, the opponents, he uh, appealed to people and were not afraid of uh, going out and talking to the crowd. Gorbachev uh, was not like that. He uh, was more comfortable in speaking to educated elites than the people. He, uh, I think, uh, thought that in 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 Yeltsin, he dismissed Yeltsin originally, by the way, and he did discounted his potential as people's leader, as a populist, as a talented populist, I should say. So that was uh, a major miscalculation of him, uh, particularly because I think he discount he discounted him because he thought he understood him so well. Again, for all the above reasons, same social background, same generation. But he misunderstood one important thing, that it was the time when Gorbachev's political reforms made it possible for Yeltsin to appeal directly to the masses of Russians and present himself in an image of a so-called populist politician, or some would say a Russian czar, a people's czar, who responded to immediately and directly to people's demands and people's desires. And uh, when Gorbachev realized that it was, um, you know, almost almost too late because Yeltsin became hugely popular. Would it be true to say that Yeltsin's uh, democratizing political stance circa 1987-1988 was more opportunistic than anything else? Well, all politicians are opportunists, and Gorbachev kept changing his tack many, many times. He started with one set of reforms, then those reforms failed. Gorbachev uh, changed his tack. You know, uh, Yeltsin did the same, but Yeltsin did it in in a sense, you know, I, you know, did it in a more blunt and 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 radical way than Gorbachev. He didn't vacillate. He didn't wait. For instance, in one remarkable episode. He um, uh, traveled to the United States, I write about it, in September 1989, and that was his first uh, private visit to a foreign country, and that was, you know, America. So he went there with this kind of populist uh, um, program based on perestroika slogans that Gorbachev advanced, but basically saying, I'm more radical than Gorbachev. I, I want to fix perestroika by going, doing more radical things and giving more power to the people, more power to the Soviets. And then after America, after he saw American prosperity, he sort of became a, a fan of American economic liberalism. And he returned and said, I want to bring American dream to the Russians. And instead of appealing to the Soviets, as he did before, he began to appeal to the Russians. He became a Russian politician, began to run on a ticket in the Urals as sort of, you know, from a depth of Russia, uh, trying to restore Russia's greatness. And that was very, very important. Was it opportunistic? Uh, in part, of course. But at the same time, I think he convinced himself at some point that he was a savior of Russia. He was a restorer of a historic Russia. And by doing so, the two sides of his self, let's say opportunistic, where he, you know, let's put it, you know, bluntly, he just wanted to unseat Gorbachev and seize power. That side uh, correlated with the other side, uh, more like Russian messianic, uh, where at some point he decided, oh, I don't need Gorbachev's job. I don't want to be the president of the Soviet Union. The future belongs to Russia. So I will be the first elected president of Russia. And this strategy essentially brought him to the heights of power later on. I get the impression from the book that Gorbachev greatly liked interacting with Western leaders. Indeed, I almost get the impression that he enjoyed that interaction more than his interaction with his uh, Politburo colleagues. Gorbachev was an intellectually curious person, a lot of curiosity for new things. That was uh, his um, inquisitive side. This is what Andropov, by the way, liked in him. Uh, you know, he liked to read, he liked to have new experience, he liked to talk to new people. So for him, for instance, 
you know, talking to the Politburo was like talking to the same people he knew very well. There's not much to learn from them. He, he considered himself to be more educated than his colleagues, uh, you know, more enlightened than them. Uh, you know, he read philosophy. They did not and so on and so forth. But when he met foreign leaders, he always discovered something new and gradually learned to enjoy those conversations um, as sort of a, a substitute for and more profound discussions on what he wanted to achieve on the kind of reforms that he could not for various reasons do in, uh, in the Politburo or in front of his party colleagues or in front of the Russian people who simply did not did not understand sometimes what 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 the hell he was doing this particular moment so and foreign leaders were a attentive they listened to his long speeches uh, they added, uh, you know, they learned, uh, taught him new things and new words. And so Gorbachev uh, brought those words to the Soviet Union, to the Politburo, the words such as uh, pluralism, for instance, that was not un not known before. Um, and uh, um, tolerance, for instance. Um, so he uh, used, gradually learned to use his conversations with um, both European Western socialism, so, socialists, social democrats, and European anti-communists and conservatives such as Thatcher, Reagan, uh, to uh, sort of hone his ideas um, a, and enjoyed it, really, truly enjoyed. So by reading his new, you know, numerous uh, records of conversations, which are widely available in Russian and in, in English, you do uh, get an impression that Gorbachev not only became westernized in the process, but he developed a true affinity for 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 Western partners, um, in, in, to which they paid back, uh, of course, in part. But you know, one always feels that for the Western politicians, they never forgot that they were elected to promote their national interests, and sometimes you feel that Gorbachev was so enamored with, uh, you know, in conversations with Western leaders that he almost forgot that they are actually leaders of other countries, not necessarily friendly to the Soviet Union. He wanted all of them to become partners and friends, partners of his great experiments. So uh, on this, he was partially successful, partially not. So in essence, uh, you would say he was rather naive in his view of Western leaders. Um. To call him naive, I would uh, I would use it, this term, but uh, with caveat. It's Gorbachev was not naive in a sense that he never thought of, for instance, uh, American intentions and American goals uh, at the end of the Cold War. We're talking about the end of the Cold War, right? And uh, yes, the KGB, the Soviet diplomacy, you know, all kinds of other sources, the military informed him on uh, U.S. intentions. U.S. intentions were very different uh, from what Gorbachev expected them to be. Uh, he, you know, Americans under the Bush uh, administration, Bush senior, uh, were hesitant, uh, to put it mildly, to rescue Gorbachev from his economic trouble. They didn't want the West to give Gorbachev uh, money to do, to to reform the Soviet economy. They were initially extremely cautious with regard to. Uh, Gorbachev's own intentions and Bush only later uh, began to trust that Gorbachev was sincere. But, you know, Gorbachev received all, th all this information, but at the same time remained remarkably optimistic and basically saying we have no other choice. We have to convince uh, the Western partners that we we have changed, that we left the old system behind. We want to integrate our country into, you know, the Western structures, economic and political. So he wanted to win the West with his sincerity, with his course of uh, rapprochement. And I think, you know, again, uh, in part, it, it worked. Uh, people in the, some people, particularly on the European left, but not only, they were ecstatic about Gorbachev, was Gorbomania, uh, you know, but in the United States, there was more skepticism, and uh, uh, particularly among the elites after so many years of the Cold War. So I don't think to the Gorbachev, uh, succeeded particularly to convince the Americans that yes, you can uh, 
look at the Soviet Union as an evolving entity that in the end will not be a threat to the United States. That was a really a tall order, right? After all those decades of the Cold War. So uh, one can call Gorbachev's expectations naive. Uh, one can call also the expectations of his successor who destroyed the Soviet Union, that is Boris Yeltsin, also naive because Yeltsin continued to offer uh, Russia's membership in NATO and Russia's membership in all Western structures as a, the, as a primary partner of the United States. Was it naive? Uh, yes, to an extent, but uh, behind it was a course of, you know, basically, if, if we want to put an end to confrontation in Europe, if we want to integrate the Soviet Union and then Russia into, uh, into structures of peace and prosperity, then that's the only way. Why was Gorbachev, as you put it on page 69, quote, the sorcerer's apprentice, unquote? That's the image, of course, of someone who unleashes forces that he later uh, cannot control. And why, who was the sorcerer? You know, for Gorbachev, it was Lenin. He kept reading Lenin all the time, even uh, in 1989 and even later. Uh, always, not, not directly what uh, Lenin did, but sort of raising Lenin's ghost and asking what Lenin would have done in his place and how he would have led this peaceful revolution, not violent revolution, to its uh, you know happy happy conclusion, sort of to to the arrival uh, to the harbor where the Soviet Union would be a peaceful, a prosperous uh, state and society. Um, in co cooperation with the West. So um, he turned out to be not a sorcerer. He turned out to be uh, someone less who gradually lost it. And uh, even those who admire him, you mentioned Archie Brown, you know, I mentioned Bill Taubman, even they have to recognize that he um, lost uh, his cause and therefore he's a tragic figure. How important was Gorbachev to the events of 1989 in uh, Central and Eastern Europe? He was central, uh, but in a passive way, uh, because the fact uh, is that the Eastern Europeans, of course, had long been waiting for an opportunity to return, as they put it, back to Europe and uh, dismantle their structures. There were, of course, powerful elites that benefited from, from the communist order, uh, the military who co co cooperated with the Warsaw Pact. But as it turned out, all those elites, uh, when it was possible, they quickly uh, shifted sides and became you know, successful entrepreneurs. They, the same military that cooperated with the Soviets began to cooperate with NATO, just changed their uniforms and, and, and their loyalties. And that was so. But what 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 allowed Eastern Europeans to do it? Above all, of course, Gorbachev's uh, perestroika, Gorbachev's course that essentially meant, you know, you on your own. He uh, he said to Eastern European leaders. At first, they didn't take them seriously. Take this seriously. Later on, they found that Gorbachev was, was dead serious about it. So when once they discovered they were on their own, that's when the communist regimes began uh, to collapse. And, uh, you know, economic, there were other factors, of course, you should mention, such as, you know, the Soviet Union kept supplying them with cheap oil. And at that point, the oil prices collapsed, but also Gorbachev economic reforms made it increasingly difficult for the Soviet Union to sell uh, to, to send this cheap oil to, to, to the satellites and, and, and allies. So economic fa and financial factor did matter. But primarily, there was a sense that there would be no Soviet tanks rolling into those countries if they take the matters into their own hands. And this is where Gorbachev was crucial. Uh, but at the same time, Gorbachev did not actively promote anything like, you know, the course in this or that direction. He refused to intervene even when uh, the future of East Germany was at stake. You know, some people uh, from the KGB, the military and so on and so forth, believed uh, and saw that the Eastern European, uh, Eastern, sorry, Eastern German the communist regime 
was teetering uh, and was about to fall. And they said, you know, they cabled to Moscow, we should intervene and pick a new leader uh, urgently to retain control of the situation, or at least to help engineer the rise of new leader instead of old, sick and, uh, you know, widely despised Erich Honecker. And Gorbachev categorically refused to, to do it as a matter of principle. He said, no, 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 we intervened in the past, we, we stop, we will never intervene again. So not only uh, Gorbachev played that huge passive role in the changes in Eastern Europe by unleashing his reforms and lifting the veil of fear, but, you know, he also sort of uh, removed the enormous Soviet power, hard power, soft power, whatever, manipulative power from that equation when changes began. So it's, it's an interesting, complicated and rather amazing story. Why did Yeltsin decide to become, as you put it, quote, a Russian politician, unquote? He saw that at some point that the Soviet Union uh, was too big for him. He developed sympathies for those uh, on the borderlands in the Baltic republics, in Armenia, Georgia, and so on and so forth, that uh, had nationalist aspirations. And he figured out that he would uh, have a better chance to run and win a slate as a Russian leader within the largest Republic of the Soviet Union. Now, just to clarify that the Russian Federation, so-called Russian Federation, was not a simple republic of the Soviet Union. It was rather a foundation for the Soviet Union, but at the same time, that federation uh, lacked uh, any institutions, any autonomous institutions, political party or scientific or cultural, that other republics had simply because it was absolutely clear for Stalin and for Stalin's successors. If you uh, have a Russian center inside the Soviet Union, it would be draw you know, so much energy and so much of Russian nationalism that the Soviet Union would simply be torn apart and would collapse. So that danger was very, very clear. Yeltsin uh, allegedly, and he continued to his death, to say that he did not actually want to destroy the Soviet Union, uh, that he did it to restore the dignity and glory of Russia, but he was a politician. He did uh, see, I think, that by his actions, he was creating a, a remarkable phenomenon, I would call it uh, a Brexit, after Brexit, we use these new words, a Brexit that would basically mean, you know, imply that, okay, all the English would decide to uh, leave the United Kingdom. What then would remain of the United Kingdom? And the same kind of story went for, for, for the Russians and Russia under Yeltsin. If you pull Russia out of the Union, make it fully sovereign as he wanted, what would remain of the Soviet Union? So this is exactly what he did, and this did play the primary role in pulling the rug from under the Soviet institutions and Gorbachev himself. Um, so it's hard for me, returning to motivation question, it's hard for me to see Yeltsin as sort of innocently walking into this. I think he realized that it might happen, but somehow he figured out that by coming to power, in the Kremlin, and he wanted to be the master of Moscow, the master of the Kremlin. He famously said to Gorbachev, the Kremlin should belong to Russia as well. Well, the Kremlin was the seat of power of the Soviet Union as a whole, not only of one republic, uh, however big. Uh, so uh, he, want, he hoped that when he would be the master of the Kremlin, when he would become the master of Russia, the, the very weight of Russia, its resources, its immensity, its you know, population would work enough uh, for other republics so that they would stay in some kind of a voluntary union, which was a bad strategic error on his part, because, you know, not only the Bolts wanted to distance from from the Soviet Union and Russia, 
uh, other people like Georgians and and, uh, and 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 so on and so forth and the Ukrainians above all, they uh, saw the rise of Russia under Yeltsin and their in first reaction was, who are we then? If if Russians are on the rise, then what about a historic Ukraine? What about a historic Georgia? What about a historic, you know, I don't know, uh, Belarus? Uh, so this worked not the way Yeltsin ever uh, planned, or at least the way he ever admitted. Would it be true to say that in your narrative, uh, you have generally a low opinion of the Russian Democrats? Um. No, I think there were people um, acting in under the circumstances uh, with the best intentions. They were impatient. They wanted change. I cannot blame them because I was among them myself at that time. And uh, I marched under the slogans of the of democratic Russia. Uh, it is just, you know, it is just... Uh, the fact that all uh, reformers, all radicals, uh, all revolutionaries uh, operate within the uh, bubble of their time and what they know and ba based on the lessons of the past. It's not their fault that they do not see the future. And sometimes because of their radical intentions and the, the, the focus on the project, they don't do not kind of... Uh, distance from uh, that their, their goals and ask themselves, oh, wait a minute, which way we're we going? Would it end in a total collapse, disaster and, and, you know, impoverishment and so on and so forth? No, this is not the way revolutions are done. This is not the way radical reforms are done. So Russian reformers, for me, are not better or not worse than any reformers, except they were really uh, unfortunate that they operated in the country that had so many nationalist uh, minefields, uh, such a poorly uh, constructed economy, uh, no, not, not a market economy, by the way, until 1992. Uh, so many uh, forces unleashed by Gorbachev that operated against them. Uh, so, um, I think I just I just tried to show to the reader what the, those Democrats thought, uh, why in retrospect it looks horribly naive and uh, even sometimes dangerous uh, what they uh, wanted. But I, I was there myself, so I guess you know I'm more self-critical than uh, than accusative. Uh, would it be correct to say that in the book? 1990 was the ultimate wasted year by Gorbachev, it being the last time that he could have stabilized the situation and still continue with reforms from above? Yeah, it was a strange year, and uh, that was probably the last opportunity in the, in the spring, in the summer of 1990 for Gorbachev to use his, his incredible power. He was still in charge of the Communist Party, but he was also elected as a, the president of the USSR with extraordinary uh, powers delegated to him by the newly elected Congress of People's Deputies. So with all this massive power, he could and probably should have launched radical reforms that uh, advised to him by market-oriented economists. Uh, because the Soviet Union was a was an unknown market economy, but it was a, a common, united, and highly interdependent economic space. So, for instance, politically, the Balts, uh, Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Lithuania, really, really wanted to to exit the union. But economically, they were hugely interdependent with the rest of the Soviet economy. So, by unleashing mar market forces, well, some economists argued Gorbachev could have diffused, not to tame, probably the Balts would have gone. Uh, would would have been you know leaving anyway, but you know to tame those national separatist forces and also redirect the energy of people from just marching in the streets um, and standing in front of empty stores to uh, market activity, 
and privatization activity. And that was uh, done by Yeltsin later on. It was a, of course, you know, potentially very politically radical, radicalizing measure. But at the same time, it did work to redirect the power of uh, the, the power of uh, national people's energy to sort of private concerns, how to put the bread on the table, how to, you know, how to re, uh, how to remake your life around market needs. Uh, rather than just to to go to go and protest, so Gorbachev missed that that, that chance. I think he never could decide on uh, what uh, strategy to uh, market strategy to ascribe to, and in part, in part, uh, as you find, it was his concern for Soviet people, for Russian people. He knew that uh, uh, market reforms would be harsh on the people, and he. Uh, yes, he was afraid of losing power as a result of it, but he also didn't want people to suffer. So, you know, was it his good nature? Was it his fear to lose power? One thing or the other, he missed that chance. He missed that train. Why did Eduard Shevardnadze resign in December 1990? Shevardnadze wanted to resign even earlier. He wanted to resign in December 89. Uh, largely because of what happened in his homeland, Georgia, where, you know, Soviet, primarily Russian troops, used force against civilians. And that put Chernozzi in a bind. He was a Georgian. Um, people um, sort of wanted him to return to Georgia to, uh, you know, to deal with this problem. So as a Georgian uh, patriot, nationalist, you may say, he, you know, he faced an, um, a really impossible dilemma. To, he couldn't side with the army that suppressed his own people. At the same time, he was a functionary of Gorbachev's Politburo, and he uh, knew that uh, Georgia in itself would be in, you know, subjected to huge economic problems and and uh, ethnic separatism, ethnic violence, and so on and so forth. So he... Um, I guess he uh, ha was near a, a personal psychological breakdown at the end of 89. But then Gorbachev told him to stay because, you know, uh, there was so much things to do in foreign policy. He was foreign minister. Germany was moving towards unification. Uh, so Gorbachev needed Shevardnadze as, you know, Shevardnadze was practically number two. Um, uh, recognized by the West as a good guy, as a reformer after Gorbachev. So, but at the end of 1990, I think Sharon already figured out that Gorbachev's days were numbered, that he failed, he missed the, the train, as I described, and it was time to prepare for something else. There was no place for uh, Shevardnadze in that team. And also, there was, the, frankly, the rise of Russian nationalism, and it was a fear that there would, this nationalism would be really nasty at the time, sort of like Russian fascism. And Sharonazov felt intensely uncomfortable in this environment. He was a Georgian. He kept saying to his assistants, you know, uh, you know, a Georgian ran the Soviet Union before he meant Stalin, of course. I don't want to become a second uh, scapegoat uh, in this country. So he he resigned and quite dramatically resigned, uh, as, as, as some people remember. What were the origins of the attempted coup of August 1991? What did the group behind it uh, hope to achieve and why did it fail? Well, it's a huge question and, uh, you know, there's not enough time to cover the coup. It's a whole, you know, chapter of the book. Uh, I would just say that those people were desperate because they realized that uh, in a few days the Soviet Union would cease to exist as a unitary state. It would transform into some kind of a very loose uh, and uncertain confederation where Yeltsin would call all the shots and Gorbachev would be like, you know, a sidekick. To Yeltsin, so they took that desperate dash to stop it, and when Gorbachev refused to co cooperate with them, they did it on their own. But in reality, they lacked any serious economic and political pro program, and most uh, remarkably for me, they lacked that uh, you know um, uh, the main stuff uh, dictators are made of: uh, the willing, the will to shed blood, the will to use power. 
Uh, so that was my one of my major surprises when I did research on those people. They were just they didn't have guts to 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 become real dictators. Therefore, their coup unraveled very quickly. Who was ultimately responsible for the end of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin or Ukrainian leader Kravchuk? I, I think both of them, but uh, the, uh, uh, the the Yeltsin was the leading the leading violin, if you like, the first violin in this kind of little orchestra, because the, it was Yeltsin that uh, you know led the, the Russian Federation towards independence and sovereignty, and Kravchuk followed his example. Uh, Yeltsin did uh, did stand on the tank in August 1991, denouncing the coup and seizing all power in Moscow. And Kravchuk react, and the Ukrainian communists reacted to this as well. Um, Kravchuk did try to sort of turn the table a little bit by, um, you know, by uh, November, uh, October, November 1991. Uh, he uh, tried uh, to outsmart, in a sense, um, Yeltsin and, uh, and the Russians by appealing to the West, by appealing to Ukrainian diaspora, and by running very, very clever campaign within Ukraine, uh, which you know was based on a series of promises to stay friendly with Russia, so to stay you know economically integrated with Russia, on the promise of cheap Russian oil and gas that would keep flowing into Ukraine, and at the same time, the promise of Yeltsin to uh, respect Ukraine's territorial integrity, which sounds ironic today and tragic today, but uh, Yeltsin did sign an agreement with Kravchuk on this as early as November 1990. So when Kravchuk got elected, he came with all this baggage to, uh, to... to the place uh, to meet Yeltsin on very close to the Polish border in Belarus, and essentially refused to sign any documents, um, whatever is that we're independent now. We 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 don't want to have any union with with Russia or with Gorbachev with whoever. And then it was again a Yeltsin's initiative because he brought a team um, um, of people who came up with this formula. Uh, we can dissolve the Soviet Union and create the Commonwealth of Independent States. So at every step, you see the Russian side, uh, you know, being uh, being more active and more, you know, taking data uh, to terminate the Soviet Union. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? It's uh, it's. Uh, the nature of history, that there are always huge surprises around the corner, uh, that you should not mistake stability for for, a, for, a, for, for, for anything granted. The history uh, is uh, in, inherently volatile uh, process. And, uh, you know, uh, when we look at the Soviet Union, people, I think, too readily dismiss the collapse of the Soviet Union. But of course, it was inevitable. I hope my book proves it wrong. The Soviet Union was a victim of a tremendous agency and contingency, including, most surprisingly, from the Russians themselves. And, uh, you know, when you discuss anything that happens in the UK, in the, in the United States, wherever in the world, you have to take it into account. There are all kinds of uh, all kinds of surprises, uh, not so pleasant sometimes, that await us around the corner. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Zabok, very much. My pleasure.